chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, where we left off last time. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. If you would, follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. By by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. As we think about those words in comparison to what we talked about last week, and we were so... uh, encouraged as we were eagerly awaiting Christ's return, these kind of fall flat a little bit, don't they? (laughs) They seem heavy with the weight of this focus on sin. But I want to remind you as we walk into this passage this morning that John is writing this letter to encourage believers. He's writing to give them an assurance of salvation, and we need to understand that this passage is no exception to that intent because he knows how patterns of sin will rob us of the assurance of our salvation but a lifestyle of righteousness is what strengthens our hope this passage is a call to let the passion of our heart drive the practice of our life for those who are walking with christ these words will be of great affirmation And for those who are not, it will be an invitation to experience something different. And in order to capture the essence of this passage, I want us to to focus on three very clear themes that are found in these verses. I've listed them there in your bulletin. We'll walk through each of them. But let's begin with that first one, the, the purpose of Christ's coming. I already talked about that when we went through and celebrated communion this morning. But it's important to start here because we have to understand the grounds, the the foundation of this truth in order to be able to appreciate the two truths that follow. Because what we believe about Christ's coming will reveal the heart behind the actions of our practice. John makes it clear that Jesus appeared to take away sins, that He came to destroy the works of the devil. We see that in verses 5 and verses 8. The works of the devil go all the way back to the garden where Satan convinced Adam and Eve to trust in Him more than they trust in God. That's essentially at its core what happened. Because you'll remember that Adam and Eve walked in fellowship with God that He had given them everything that they could possibly need. And each and every day, their life was completely fulfilled. He had instructed them that there was one thing that they were 
not allowed to, to be around. And we understand, as we know the rest of the story, it was for their protection. It was forbidden for them. But everything else was theirs. And, and they had learned and, and appreciated the, the fact that God and was faithful to His promise. And every day they had exactly what they needed to live that life to the fullest. But one day, something changed. The serpent appeared. And he began to try and convince Adam and Eve that what God said was not exactly true. He wanted to plant a seed of doubt. You remember, he tells them about that uh, prohibition that, that God made and said, surely you will not die. For God knows that on that day that you eat of that tree that he has forbidden from you, that you will see the knowledge of good and evil. Essentially what Satan was trying to convince Adam and Eve, and he did so successfully, is that God's not protecting you. He's holding out on you. And you deserve better than that. And what happened on that day was a transfer of allegiance. As Adam and Eve, who had previously trusted in God for what he had promised to give them to Satan, and what they believed he said to be true, as evidenced by their decision to eat of that tree. And we need to understand that that same sin exists in the heart of every person born into this world from that day forward. We are born blind to God's truth, under the curse of Satan's control, and dependent upon Him who feeds our appetite for sin. It started in the garden, and it has continued every day since that time. As Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they do not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, which is the image of God. But Jesus came to change things. You may remember that scene in Luke's gospel where he goes into the synagogue and is asked to, to speak from Scripture. And you remember he stands up and reads a specific passage, right? That's very important about what he chose that day. In fact, let's look at it together. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. He has the entire Old Testament to read from. And yet there is significance in the one thing that he chooses to read. Look at what it says beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue and on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Now, what's important about that is clearly Jesus is going to a specific place to read a specific passage with a specific intent in mind. Look at what it was. It is this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all those in the synagogue were fixed upon Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
The scripture was fulfilled because Jesus had come to destroy Satan's power and give sight to the blind that they may see the light of that gospel truth that he had come for the forgiveness of sins. The good news of salvation through faith and trust in him. Jesus came to restore the relationship that had been destroyed in the garden by once again inviting us to trust in Him, to to believe in the promises that He made instead of believing in something else. This is the point in verse 5 where John says that, that Christ came, he who knew no sin. That Jesus did not possess a sin nature like ourselves. It says that he was righteous. Now, that's incredibly significant. Because everyone who receives this letter, those who are familiar with what God had proclaimed, know very clearly that there's only one who is righteous. Because the scripture says, Paul repeats it in Romans, and it says, There is none righteous, not even one. And everyone knows that the only one who is righteous is who? God. This is my friend today. That's exactly right. There is only one righteous, and that is God. And so that means that the righteous one, Jesus, God incarnate, came to fulfill the promise spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and on that day he proclaimed to those in the synagogue, I am he. I am the one that Scripture has spoken of. Came to set captives free, to give sight to the blind, the forgiveness of sins through his sacrifice on the cross. Now, in our world today, and I believe even in our church this morning, there are those who would hear those truths and, and they would affirm them to be true. They, they believe in them. And then there are those who have not made that commitment. But what confuses this issue is the, the mixed message of those like the false teachers who claim they believe in God but yet have not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. These people are the ones who remain under Satan's control and are only fooling themselves when it comes to what it means to have fellowship with God. Now, I want us to think about that and put ourselves within the context of this letter which John is writing. Okay, And we have all this disruption that's going on, this disunity and confusion about who's saying what and what's right and what's true. And I hear that from from John, and I probably am going to think to myself, well, how do I know that's not me? What is my assurance that I'm not the one being fooled? How can I be certain that I have eternal life? Well, John will answer that question in our passage by describing the patterns that are evident among his people. If we pull those attributes out of this passage and and line them up, I believe there are three specific things that he will intend to communicate. He says that these are the ones who know and abide in Christ. He says that in verse 6. They practice righteousness. Verse 7. 
and they are marked by his seed as a child of God. Verse 9. I want us to take these one at a time. The first one is, again, those who have fellowship with God are the ones who know and abide in Christ. In other words, our fellowship with God hinges on our relationship with Christ. And what we believe about Him must be consistent with the apostolic teaching of those who saw and heard Him firsthand. That's what John said when he began this letter. What we have seen with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, what we have beheld and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, Jesus Christ, we proclaim to you. And over and over again, he keeps bringing them back to the point of believing in that which they first heard. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there is life for those who believe in him. As Paul would say, there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the single solution for the problem of sin. And to as many as receive Him, to Him He gives the right to become children of God. You remember that incredible passage that we looked at last week. How great a love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. And now, let's continue to follow that thought because as a child of God, wouldn't it make sense that our life would increasingly reflect the attributes of our Father. Isn't that what he says in verse 7 of our passage when he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Why? Because he is righteous. <laughs> this weekend we had Owen Martin over to our house. Owen is Jason's, Jason Jill's son, his nine-year-old son, He and Grant are good friends. Uh, They are almost like two peas in a pod. It's fun to watch them. Their imaginations are huge. And when those come together, they're creating all kinds of fantasy world that they're living in. But one of the things that I've already noticed about Owen, and you probably have too if you've met him, he's a little Jason. (laughs) Just the way he looks and speaks, even his mannerisms, he would often tell Grant as they were interacting together, Grant, that's hilarious. And that's exactly what Jason would say, right? And I'm sure that the day Owen was born, you could probably look at him and see that there were things about him that reminded you of Jason. He, he looked like him. But as Owen grew up under the influence of his dad, he began to mirror some of the same mannerisms as well. There's a lot in Owen that reminds me of his dad. And in the same way, as we grow up knowing and abiding under the influence of Christ and His Word, we should expect to reflect the attributes of what we see in Him. But here's a point that is important to to understand. That, That practice of righteousness is not just a learned behavior, just something that we do that we we mimic what we see. It's actually been credited to us so that we live out that which has been given to us. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
Look with me beginning in verse 5. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man whom God reckons or credits righteousness apart from works. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. His point is that we don't learn to be righteous by doing good works. We do good works because we have been made righteous. We are living out that which has been credited to us. Our life reflects the attributes of the one to whom we have been united through faith. John says it this way in chapter 9 of our passage. He said, or verse 9, he says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. What he's telling us is that we have been marked by his seed as a child of God. And the lifestyle of sin is no longer the pattern of our life. Now we need to be clear here that John is not suggesting here that Christians are the ones who are perfect. Who live in this uh, constant uh, process of of sinless perfection. Because that's not true. And here's a couple of reasons why I know that's true. The first one is this. I've never met one of those people. Never, not one, not even close. Everybody I've met is in process. The other reason I know that's not true is because of what John has already said in his letter that he would not contradict. That was back in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. His point in that passage is that Christians are people of confession. The Spirit is what reveals the sin in their life and they go confidently before the Father who is faithful and just to forgive their sins and to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. What John is intending to communicate here is that Christians cannot be controlled by a sin nature that was crucified on the cross. We are no longer enslaved by that. Paul puts it this way. If you want to flip over a few pages from Romans 4 to Romans 6. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 5. He's for, for if we have become united with Him, Christ, in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be Slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. The old self was crucified. And the enslaving power of sin, that that dominion of Satan's control, was broken. And in its place is the presence of this holy seed. This divine power at work within us. So that we recognize the sin that so easily entangles us, but yet we go confidently with a desire to live purely before the holy God who has redeemed us. And we confess that sin. 
And we know and trust that He is faithful to forgive us of our sins. Here's the point. Those who trust in Christ are persistent in their desire to do His will. And their practice flows out of this passion. Remember, they're not perfect. But they are persistent. As the Spirit does His perfecting work in teaching us as a believer in Jesus Christ to walk in the righteousness that has been credited to us. That's our heart's desire and that's His point. But to those who have not truly committed their life to Christ, they will find themselves walking in the deceitful practice of sin. Now the word deceived that John uses in verse 7 is important because it describes someone who chooses to believe something that simply is not true. We'll go back to the garden. Eve was deceived. She believed something that Satan told her and what he said simply was not true. So if they're deceived, then, then they do not see the sin of their choices. But it also means that like Eve, they have chosen not to measure their choices against what God has said in His Word. Instead, they're doing what is right in their own eyes. Now some because we live in the Bible Belt, right, may know what God's Word says, but have determined that it's really not relevant anymore because we've progressed past a lot of the archaic things that are recorded in such an old book, and so they just simply don't apply. To others, they look at it and they say, well, some of the stuff in there is really good, and we should do what it says, but there's some other stuff that I don't think so, so we'll just pick and choose what makes most sense to us. But whatever the reason... The bottom line is this. We cannot have fellowship with God unless we are willing to give up our control and submit our lives to His. That's the bottom line. Because if God is not in control, there's really only one other option, right? John makes it clear in our passage. He says in verse 9, the one who practices sin is of the devil. He goes on to say with even more clarity in verse 10, they are a child of the devil. (laughs) It's an echo of what we see in Ephesians that says, by nature we are children of wrath. What that means is that all of us were born into sin and destined for destruction unless something changes our course. But we read those words, and I I even did. As As I read and prepared our passage this week, I thought, wow, that seems strong. (laughs) Maybe it's kind of an overstatement just to get our attention, right? But it's not. The fact is we are born under the control of sin's deception. And that has been the devil's domain from the beginning of our existence. See, apparently the, the false teachers have created quite a difficulty, a distortion of the truth by overestimating their own ability to overcome sin. And when sin is not taken seriously, then neither is Christ's sacrifice. When sin's not taken seriously, then neither is Christ's sacrifice. 
the contrast, the contrast that John has here is clear. Christians are not perfect, but they are persistent, and they are unwilling to not take sin seriously. They are people of confession as the Spirit sheds light on their sin. They understand the significance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and are motivated by a heart of gratitude to walk in obedience to His life-giving Word. And there's great assurance when we see that as the pattern of our life. See, true followers of Christ are not perfect, but they are persistent. And this is in clear contrast with those who have become increasingly comfortable with compromise and the deceitful practice of sin. Those who ignore the standard of God's Word and instead choose to do just what seems right in their own eyes. John summarizes his thought in in verse 10 of our passage. He says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now you read that, and that last statement almost seems like an add-on, an afterthought. And even the one who doesn't love his brother. (laughs) But it's not. And we'll find that out as we continue in our passage, because... Most of what we have left in John's letter deals with this issue of loving your brother. But because of what we've heard and learned and walked through together this morning, we can understand this truth. And and actually, if you understand what's going on in the context of this letter, you'll realize that this reality of, of loving one another is what is most significant to them in their life. It's what rings true to them most. Because they've been deeply affected by the fallout of the false teachers and the wake of broken relationships that remain in their path. But based on what John says in our passage, we can understand why this is the case. Because wouldn't you expect to see disunity from those who are ruled with pride? Because the needs of others will be eventually become an obstacle for those who live for themselves. Right? It's part of the pattern. of Those who don't, do not live in the humility of Christ's rule of love in their life. And so as we finish up this morning, I want us to consider that, that driving theme of our passage that, that tells us that, that Christians are those who take sin seriously. They are the ones who measure their life against the standard of God's Word. And they have a sincere desire to walk in righteousness, that which has been credited to them. But we need to be careful here, don't we? Because sometimes that desire to to live righteously, that desire to, to take sin seriously, can lead us down a path of legalism. Where... Our goal is to pridefully compare our performance to everyone else around us and look critically at those who don't measure up to our standard. But here's what we need to understand. It's not our standard that we're measuring against. It is the standard that we see through us to what was demonstrated in the life of Christ. And not just 
following and, and, and mimicking his example of actions, but to, more importantly, look at the desire of his heart and believe that that's what he's called us to do and be, is to, to live under the influence of Christ and his word so that the desires of God become the desires of Todd. And I live out of that passion to walk in a way that honors Him. And so as we consider that, I want us to think of some of the attributes that you would expect to see in people who have that heart's desire, right? The first one is this. I believe that we should be a people who walk humbly, desiring to learn from God's Word. Because here's the deal. If you want to know what God's will is... Wouldn't it make sense that you would go to the place where that's revealed? You would want to know what it says so that you can align your life to the words that give us life? Well, that's one of those attributes. The people of God are the ones that are dependent upon God's truth to be the guide of their life. They trust in God's wisdom more than they depend on their own. They recognize where they fall short and, and they trust that that. God knows what's best, that He's good and right, and His promises are faithful and true, that His Word is a lamp unto His feet, and His light is a, path, is a guide unto our path. It's this pattern of pursuing the truth, of living under God's Word. Let me encourage us here that this is not simply an academic exercise, Okay? We're not talking about this need for us to go and parse verbs and make sure that we can study and, and impress people with all the things that we know from the original language. Okay? We, we are not being called to be students of the Scripture so that we can diagram sentences. We're not supposed to master its content. Its content is supposed to master us so that we begin to reflect the heart behind the words because of the relationship we have with the author of those words. See, that's what God's calling to us to when He tells us to line our lives up to His Word. But being in His Word is really just the beginning. Because ultimately, growing in all spiritual wisdom and knowledge is a result of some divine intervention. It's that seed that this passage has told us indwells us. So another attribute of God's people is a dependence upon God's Spirit. Remember, John's already made the point in chapter 2 that, that you have no need for anyone to teach you because the Spirit who is in you was given to you for that purpose. See, others often tell us what we want to hear. The Spirit of God tells us what we need to hear. We do what is right in the eyes of others. The Spirit leads us to do what is right in the eyes of God. And His Spirit is there for the purpose of, of a divine work of transfer, transforming us into the image of His Son, what He has ultimately created us to be. God's people trust in God's Word. They, they listen for God's Spirit. But having said all that, I want us to make sure that we don't underestimate the significance of living in relationship with God's people. Because that's part of what should be reflected in our life as a believer in Jesus Christ. That's why we're told in Scripture, as James says, to confess our sins to one another so that you might be healed. Because when God's Spirit works through God's Word to reveal sin, we need to be serious enough 
about changes in our life that we are willing to invite others in on that journey, to walk with us with a common desire to be shaped into the image of Christ. And I want to tell you here that this is not just you know, confession of some gross sin of immorality. These are the daily decisions of trust. And I want you to think about that because if we drill down to the core of all sin, isn't that ultimately what you find is a decision of trust? Isn't that ultimately what we saw in the garden and every day since that point? And so what we're doing is we're inviting people in our life to help us trust in God. Will you pray for me to trust in God's promise and in the commitment that I made before Him in my promise to live faithfully in my relationship with my spouse? Will you pray for me to trust God and His provision and to not depend on the success of my career as the mean by which we are secure? Will you pray for me to trust Him in that? Will you pray for me to, to trust in God's provision in the midst of health concerns, whether me personally or those that I care and love, that, that I can believe in my heart and, and know and trust that He will not give me more than I can bear, that His grace is sufficient. Will you help me trust? Pray for me that I would. That's what this is talking about when we walk in fellowship with one another. Because here's the point. Christianity is not a private affair. Instead, our faith is to be lived out within the context of the body. As we, as Scripture says, sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. See, we should reflect corporately the relationship uh, that we have with, in, with one another. The grace and forgiveness that each of us experience individually in our relationship with Christ. That we learn from His Word with one another that we, we listen to His Spirit with one another, that we lean on each other. Those are the attributes that we see in the life of Christ and that we are called to emulate in ours as well. Not just by mimicking what we see, but by seeing our heart transformed so that we simply fulfill what has been credited to us. That righteousness that has been given to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. So that that's the passion, the desire within our heart. And our actions flow out of that. We're not perfect, but we're persistent. And our desire to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, that should be a sign, an affirmation, an encouragement that we are a child of God. That's the reason that he's writing this letter, is to encourage us to that end. And so let's examine our life and see that that's true, and walk accordingly. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come before you. We know that all of your scripture is inspired by your spirit, and is good, and right, and true. And sometimes we bump up against things that seem hard, that, that seem heavy. But even in those, we can see that they are meant for encouragement, uh, to call us to, to live out of what has been credited to us to not fall short of that which we are as a child of God. And so, Father, I pray that, that we would be affirmed as we look and examine the practice of our life to see that it is in alignment with who you've called us to be. And, and if for those who examine their life and see that they're burdened by 
the practice of sin. That they would examine their heart and see if in fact there is a ruler in their life who is righteous. Who is credited to them that righteousness so that they may live out of the fullness of what has been given to them. And if not, I pray that they come to trust in the, the good promise that you've made through salvation in Jesus Christ. That they trust you. Because we're all people of faith. It's just a matter of what we place our faith in. And I pray for those who may hear this word this morning that they would choose to put their faith and trust in you. Father, thanks for the time that we've had together as a church family. Now, may we go and live out the truths of what we've learned this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ.